Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley speaking with David Bond with an update from COP28 Climate Summit. Then, Willie Terry hosts The Struggle Continues, Part 7. Later on, Alexis Goldsmith talks with Samira Sangare, co-founder of Saratoga BLM, about an upcoming rally, march, and vigil for Palestine happening Friday. After that, Mark Dunley chats with Richard Horan of Capitol District Border Watch. Finally, we have this week's episode of Rhythm Rebellion. This week, Taina Asili speaks with eco-American musician McLee about how she used her creative talents to impact the world. But first, here are the headlines. The City of Albany Police plans to fire three of its officers who were suspended in October, months after it launched an investigation into the pay of officers who worked a special security detail for Albany's Housing Authority. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office have opened an investigation into the officers. The police union is appealing their firing. A judge has ruled that the Coyman's Planning Board aired and denying Long Energy the ability to build a terminal to distribute propane in the town. The judge based his ruling on some conflict of interest with some town officials and because the board did not cite specific reasonable grounds for its decision. The town has not yet decided whether it will appeal. A state appeals court on Thursday ruled that the Saratoga Economic Development uh, Corporation is subject to the state's oversight rules. While, this, while the group was established as a nonprofit in 1978, it mainly deals with funding provided by Saratoga County and coordinates activities with local governments. The state attorney general has issued a report confirming, confirming the complaints that health insurance companies are failing to provide adequate mental health coverage amid a worsening mental health crisis. According to James, a survey by the AG of 13 health insurance plans Found that eight, found that 86% of mental health providers they listed were either un or either unreachable, not in network, or not accepting new patients. Meanwhile, the Gazette reports that a grant for, that a grant from a private from a private charitable organization will allow Ellie's Hospital to provide a family room to care for to care for adolescents experiencing mental health crisis. Two adult-use cannabis dispensaries are opening in the Capital Region this week, one in Troy on Hoosick Road and the other on Central Ave in Albany. And, and on Saturday, December 9th, visitors to the Empire State Plaza will be treated to free carriage rides and ice demonstrations. Returning for its third year, Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York, or JFNENY, Capital Chadbad, and more than 18 local Jewish partners will once again host a community-wide community-wide Hanukkah event. Hanukkah on J. The free event will be held on the fourth night of Hanukkah, Sunday, December 10th, from 2.30 to 4 p.m. on J Street in Schenectady in front of City Hall. 
Times Union reports that on Thursday afternoon, a man was wandering around outside of Temple Israel in Albany, and two rounds uh, and two rounds of shots rang out as he shouted "Free Palestine." The uh, there was an arrest shortly after the incident. The Albany City Police reported no one was injured. Buildings near the nearby the shooting went into lockdown at the time of the shooting. That is it for the headlines. First up, the COP28 climate summit was held recently. Uh, just transition, loss, and damages, and phase-out of fossil fuels were major topics. Mark Dunley chats with Professor David Bond, who was at the summit, about these issues and more. We're joined by Professor David Bond, who is uh, at Bennington uh, College over there in Vermont. And uh, Professor Bond, along with some of his students, actually attended uh, the initial part of the uh, COP28 Global Climate Conference taking place in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, so, so David, what was some of your initial reactions to spending some time at COP28? <laughs> well, uh, I was uh, telling the students this morning, I was uh, cynical going in, uh, and I think I'm only more cynical having spent about a week on the ground in Dubai. And for people not familiar with this is, you know, a bit of a follow-up from the uh, Paris Climate Accords, always trying to put more details and, and, and teeth into it. Uh, I know one of the big issues going into it was the, would they finally agree, Ashley, to clearly say we're going to phase out the use of fossil fuels and have a, a target date on that? A lot of people very upset by the thousands of fossil fuel lobbies were there, including the head of the United Arab Emirates, who you know basically is a sultan and running a you know fossil fuel company. Um, how how did that issue play out, or is it playing out? It's obviously still going on. Uh, it was a bit uh, shocking to me to see how uh, how absent the phase phase out of fossil fuels was uh, in some of the top discussions. Uh, that is the kind of point. Like uh, if we're going to keep to any uh, reasonable goal. Uh, uh, for the climate crisis, uh, we have to phase out fossil fuels and we have to phase them out now. Um, in in some uh, several of the negotiations I was tracking, um, we were basically talking about the possibility of talking about substantive negotiations with a goal uh, of maybe adopting policy in the next decade. These are all so wildly out of line with the urgency of the moment uh, that it, it, it was it was kind of a, a bit of a, an absurd theater. Uh, you felt like I was watching sometimes um, and striking also for how much of the conference uh, this time around was actually kind of adamantly uh, arguing in various clever ways against the phase out of fossil fuels. You know, a lot of people called the last cop, uh, the last chance cop, the last chance for the world to actually have a chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees. Uh, the reports that have come out that were now actually headed probably to three degrees Celsius warming in the last, um, by the end of the century, based on the comments of the Secretary General of the United Nations, I've been referring to this as the cop where they're cutting the ribbons for the uh, opening to the uh, gates of hell. But one of the other issues moving into this conference was 
you know, whether or not the Global North industrial polluters started in the United States was actually going to provide some level of compensation, real money, not promises, hopefully not loans, to the Global South to help them pay for the loss and damages from um, the climate change, you know, driven by the fossil fuel polluters. How was loss and damages playing out while you were there? Well, you know, um, the loss and damages has been there's been a strong movement uh, from the ground up uh, for a loss and damage fund, uh, often led uh, by vulnerable countries in the global south. This is the first COP where that that loss and damages was uh, promised to have a kind of substantial uh, commitment that was going to be sort of, you know, starting that actual uh, institutionalizing that loss and damage fund. Uh, what's happened, the details of that are almost laughable. Um, we're looking at an annual uh, cost to run that, uh, to, to, to have that fund adequate to the damages uh, and disasters that climate change uh, is enacting on vulnerable countries. That needs to be funded to the tune of about $400 billion a year. Uh, right now, uh, all of the all of the things that that came in this COP, there was a big splashy announcement about it. They were all one-time charitable donations. No permanent funding mechanism has been established. Um, and the U.S. basically, you know, looked through the couch cushions and and found some loose change to throw into that pot. Uh, all of it is completely inadequate to the scale uh, of need. Uh, in the countries that are already being devastated by climate change through flooding, superstorms, drought, uh, and sea level rise. Now, you know, loss and and and, and damages is, is certainly you know tied to the concept of a a just transition. That um, you know, not only should those most um, negatively impacted by climate change, which is you know usually the poor and, and people of color, you know, be protected, but also just transition means that everybody uh, is lifted up uh, together, including those you know presently working in the fossil fuel industry. What was the vibe around the the, the just transition uh, concept at the COP? Uh, just transition was one of the more promising concepts <clears throat> I was excited about uh, coming in. Uh, both for the ways that um, labor has been, you know, authoring uh, this concept and pushing it forward, that the phase out of fossil fuel should be seen as an opportunity to radically rethink our economies uh, and re and re-engineer them uh, around, you know, the lines of justice, equity, and fairness for all. Um, it was an ex exciting idea. Uh, I spent about four days uh, tracking the, the negotiations uh, around just transition, uh, and it was, uh, you know, uh, dispirited, uh, to say the least, uh, by the ways a pretty large coalition had, uh, had taken up just transition and bent it into the very opposite uh, of what it was designed to do. So you had uh, Saudi Arabia very loudly voicing uh, a, a, a kind of a statement that the just transition was only possible through uh, more expenditures of fossil fuels, um, that we had to, that you you couldn't, uh, you know, imagine transitioning economies, especially from developing countries to developed nations without fossil fuels. Uh, and that actually we needed to, if we were going to talk about justice, it needed to be through uh, additional expenditures of fossil fuels. Uh, that was the Saudi uh, Arabia line. Um, 
in a number of other countries in various ways, the U.S. included, uh, just saying things that that were like you know dead set against it. Uh, Brazil, in this in this respect, was actually one of the more interesting uh, countries. Uh, in a lot of the just transition conversations, there was a real fault line between the global north and the global south. Uh, the global north was sort of uh, insisting upon centering labor rights, gender equity, and, and protection for indigenous people uh, in any notion of justice. Uh, a lot of the countries from the global south said all of those all of those are are sort of based within the terms of the nation state. Uh, and if we're going to talk about real justice, we have to center the inequality between nation states. Uh, and so Brazil was was interesting to me, insisting that if we're gonna talk about the just transition, we have to first center the, the international history of capitalism uh, and the ways that capitalism has produced gaping inequities between uh, the global South and the global North. And that uh, facing up to that has to be the foundation for justice uh, in the just transition. Um, there are only about 90 seconds left, so I'm going to ask an open-ended question. I understand something like 70,000 people there, so my guess is you you were not too close to the actual inner negotiations, but, you know, what was it like uh, being there, and what's your what's your hope? In As an observer, you actually have access to the negotiation room. So I was, during just transition, I was sitting one row back uh, from the diplomats and delegates uh, that were openly negotiating it in the room. So the, you're quite, you're right there. Um, my takeaway is, you know, I was talking to one of the lead activists from the Climate Action Network, uh, and they were, you know, basically saying, this COP has proven that there's no hope for substantial victories from the COP uh, negotiation. There's also a need to fight every inch uh, of the way out, uh, to demand accountability uh, and to shine a bright light on the growing corruption of the process as it's taken over uh, by the very industries that are causing the climate crisis. Um, and I was, I was quite struck by, by that point. So if COP is now worthless at this point, how do you do those negotiations in the last 20 seconds? The, 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 the activists I was talking to, some of the folks that have been involved in COP from the beginning were saying, uh, if, if there's any hope for the radical change that we desperately need, it's going to come from outside the COP process. Uh, and, and, and they saw their task increasingly uh, as one of, of not winning victories within COP, but in slowing down the corruption of COP to give time for those other social movements to begin to build, build momentum. It's Professor David Bond, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We appreciate Professor David Bond taking the time to discuss these issues. And now we turn to Hudson Mohawk Magazine's uh, roaming correspondent, roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, and the roundtable discussion, The Struggle Continues, Part 7. They've been fighting and they're oppressed. People in Puerto Rico are very oppressed. And they've been fighting for independence and freedom and all that kind of stuff. And in 1968, Ralph Fellas... In 1968, Ralph Featherstone and myself and mm. Eltha Manor, uh, you know, you know, Carlos, Eltha Manor and, and uh, 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 Fred Green, and we yeah. went to uh, New Mexico. And mm. when New Mexico, them brothers out there, Tiarina, 
Tarvino, right? Yes, yes. I remember Tarvino. They took guns and took over part of New Mexico, and they were liberating Mexico. And when That's they were correct. liberating Mexico, uh, they took land. And when they took over all this land, the FBI and the army went just like they do in Palestine today. They went out there, and one of the things they did was got Tiarina's mama and took her up in an airplane and had a big loud microphone. They was out there in the in the in the jungle or whatever you call it. And when they was in the, out there in the jungle, had the gorilla groups out there. They had his mama up in the helicopter saying, "If you don't, uh, if y'all don't surrender." We're going to throw his mama out this uh, hell of a cop. That was the FBI did and whatever. But uh, during that time they were fighting, uh, Snick sent uh, a delegation out there, and I was in that delegation. And we went out there and we formed a pact with Tiarina and all the Indian movements to uh, be part of the uh, our movement. And from that day on, Tiarina joined in with Martin Luther King and joined in with all the demonstrations that we would do. And we would always have the native people, uh, what do you call them, Chicanos or whatever you call them. Chicanos, yeah, they call them Indians and whatever we call them. We all marched together and saw that our fighters won and we made it clear. We made it clear and that we made it sure that our movement was won. We did a clear study of the Native movement, looked at the crimes and that they did to these people. We also looked at the great kingdoms that they had built all down in Mexico and all down through there in terms of uh, 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 civilization, pyramids, and just great kingdoms, and they were Aztecs and Maya and Incas and all that kind of great history. And that when at some point when we was here, uh, they put us on out here in these slaves. And the only way we could escape is go to the Indian reservation. And we lived among them, same people. We married, have babies. And we became uh, 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 the so-called Indian. We became, uh, what them brother walked from Florida? The Seminole. Yeah, Seminole. Seminole. When they fought the Seminoles, it was more African Seminoles than it was the uh, the original Seminoles. Yeah. We, I agree. I we escaped to them thing, and when we fought, when the Seminoles fought, the United States realized they were fighting a war with Africans. And that's when they walked <laughs> from uh, Florida to Oklahoma. But yeah, so our movement is one. Our movement is struggle. And that's what John Fidel and all people in Central and South America and all of them. We I just left Nicaragua. Matter of fact, I fought in Nicaragua with uh, Sandinistas down there. I uh, helped El Salvador, Guatemala. And uh, I was just in Nicaragua a couple, about a month ago. And we went in different areas where we fought at and we liberated that territory. Got a lot to help Nicaragua. And they give everybody education, medicine, and all that. But they have fought a war against the United States for almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. And right yeah. now, they got their hand in liberation. And, I, and we just left Venezuela. And Venezuela is liberating that Hugo Chavez and, and, and the President Duru down there. They got that. And that uh, there are many other liberation movements throughout that area, and they definitely whooping and fighting against the United States imperialists. So yes, the Native people, the Indian people, the, the Chicanos and all that, we are one. And that's why we have to go out there and teach them brothers their great African history and let all them Chicano brothers know in them big cities, in them jails, that we family. And when we come that's together family, we burn them prisons down, we get out yeah. of there. Yeah. <laughs> and like in Cuba, they had Cuba in the jail right here down the street from where I live. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. They had Cuban in the federal prison here. The Cuban mm-hmm. burned it yeah, in Atlanta at the land they of They burned it down. I was mm-hmm. I went out there to watch it burn. I was so happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I just want to ask uh, some uh, my last question. You know, uh, and they're kind of quick, and you know, and, and you you probably okay. answer them right, right quick. Uh, do you have any books coming out with the history that you telling us? Have you did any books? And Everybody I know have cussed me out because I ain't really no write no books. <laughs> we helped a lot of people write books and all that kind of stuff. I I got a thousand different videos out here and all that, but I definitely and somebody else wrote books on me, but I definitely ain't wrote no books. Oh, okay. So maybe something you could work on. Work on it. I, I wish I had a tape recorder. I, I got one because I got a telephone. I wish I had all the different talks I'd be making in the alleys and streets. I go to the uh, uh, nightclub every night and talk to them about the revolution, try to educate that group. I go to colleges, universities, brothers on the street, sisters on the street, and whatever, explain the revolution to them. So the revolution is, if we're putting it out there, but we need, I guess, little Carlos and our children to come and write the books and tell the story. Mm-hmm. We can tell I think that, and that's why we got I, our young people. They can write. They can write the books. Well, Carl, I, agree with you. Book. <laughs> I think that everything. I think that this is true. What he said that that our seeds, our children will have to write the books about us because a lot of us are have been in the struggle and continue to struggle and continue to to speak. For the human dignity of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, and I think that this is what we have to honor, instead of this, uh, uh, like this song that came out of the sixties in a world of fantasy by the Five Stair Steps. That who? By the Five Stair Steps, you know, in a world okay, of yeah, fantasy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. <laughs> you remember that? You talked a lot about uh, organizing and organization, and I think Kwame Ture talked a lot about that too. What I want to ask you is, is possible we could come back some other time and let that be a topic. We'd like to get information about how we go about organizing, how young people could do the organizing and get that lesson that y'all got from the 60s and 70s and whatever. Absolutely. And also, there's a SNCC website. It's the SNCC website. It's, I, forgot, uh, I forgot what it's called, but you can go to the SNCC website and it'll come up. Mm-hmm. And they got all that history and different Nick, legacy projects. Right. I got a girl from Tougaloo College, mm-hmm. and every time I say something, don't remember, she stick her head in the door. Snick Legacy Project. Snick Legacy Project. And you go on there, it's a lot of information about the movement and different people and all that. And you'll see that Snick was not made up of one person or two people, but it was made up of many. And you bought, and, and, and Snick was able to explore what you had in you and what your abilities are and help bring out abilities and training. And Jim Foreman probably was the best trainer in the world, him and Ruby, him and Ruby Dyers and whatever. But we, and, but our many organizers went many different ways and participated in different education and organization. And it was Snick that burnt, helped burn down these college campuses demanding black studies and made them put some Africa in these schools, the black schools and the white ones, put some Africans in there. And we also influenced, uh, we had a campus travels program. We went on them campus and had them on fire. And them t- 
told them students to go up there and organize black student unions and, and, and African student unions, and they did that. And now we say want to learn something about black people, African people, and that's how all these African studies came by. Because some places they picked up guns like Cornell, they picked up machine guns and demanded black studies up there. And some places they burnt down administration buildings. That all them schools gonna catch on fire if they didn't put African studies in them. And we forced them to do it. That's why they're trying to get it out now. Uh, the little bit that's in there, because the little bit that's in there, we forced in there. Uh -huh. And now they're trying to clean it up and make it white again. But we're going to keep fighting and, and uh, whatever. But then again, white folks or the United States government can't take black history or African history out of these little schools because they never been in there no way. If you, would like to, if you would like to hear the rest of this roundtable discussion, you can find the other parts on our website at mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Jika Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Magazine Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany. And finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Samira Sangare, co-founder and organizer for Saratoga Black Lives Matter, joins HMM correspondent Alexis Goldsmith talk about the rally, march, and vigil for, vigil for Palestine happening Friday, December 8th at the Spear of Life statue in Congress Park in Saratoga. This event is calling for a permanent ceasefire. Samira discusses the role of anti-Semitism and white supremacy in genocide and how the Black Lives Matter movement is intertwined with the struggle for Palestinian liberation. This is Alexis Goldsmith for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and my guest today is Samira Sangare, who's the co-founder and organizer of Saratoga Black Lives Matter. Um, can you please tell us about the event that Saratoga Black Lives Matter is hosting on Friday evening? Friday, we'll be um, meeting at Congress Park. We'll be joined by groups in the area like Jewish Voices for Peace Albany, uh, Palestinian Rights Committee, um, DSA, uh, different um, student groups uh, from colleges in the capital region. You know, we'll be marching. We'll be ha building an altar at uh, City Hall. You know, we're just really trying to continue to speak about Palestinians and speak about uh, the genocide and just continuously show support to uh, Palestinians. Um, and people who are struggling right now. Obviously, the message is ceasefire now. We need a permanent ceasefire. There are still killings going on. We know what this really is. It's a genocide. It's, again, it's not, it's not just a permanent ceasefire, but it's really the occupation of Palestinians. Like, they need to have the right to have their land, to move about within their land, We've seen in the past few weeks that some of the largest supporters for 
the war on Gaza for military aid for this war are also some of the most outspoken anti-Semites and white supremacists on the world stage. Can you comment on this? I actually got my bachelor's in Holocaust and genocide studies. Um, And when I look at this through this lens, it's disgusting. It's, it's, uh, it's something that like, you're like, how does this even happen? You know what I mean? It's sad because with what happened in the Holocaust, a terrible genocide, it's never again for a reason. And it just like makes me question, like, do people believe in humanity? There's no way that 16, over 16,000 people should be dead right now, including children. There's no way that almost 2 million Palestinians should be displaced right now. It's very heavy. It's really, sorry, this is, it's a lot. It's a lot for sure. Something that you just said, I want to dig into a little bit more. You got your degree in genocide studies and the Holocaust. Yes. I saw a frightening statistic the other day that's actually years old that nearly two thirds of U.S. young adults are unaware that six million Jewish people were killed during the Holocaust. And Mm -hmm. how do you hold the balance of amplifying that anti-Semitism is a problem and it's being driven by white supremacy, but also the Muslim and Arab world are being annihilated by the United States. You know, when I got into my major and I really found out, you know, the horrors of the Holocaust and also the horrors that the U.S. has caused in other countries. And it goes to, you know, what you said about uh, those um, statistics about young people in America. You know, I didn't know a lot of the genocides that have gone on, period. You know what I mean? And that needs to be amplified more. You know, people aren't people aren't talking about Congo. People aren't talking about Sudan. People aren't even talking about uh the Chinese Muslims in China anymore. And that's been going on for a long time. And it needs to be known that there are atrocities going on everywhere. We all lose. I also lean on uh, the people that I know who have descendants from the Holocaust. And they're the main people who are saying, not in my name. I also lean on my Muslim brothers and sisters who continuously talk about how it's also a race issue. They're the ones being uh, persecuted. And also it's really important to talk about the anti-Zionist Jewish people who live in Israel. There was an anti-Zionist neighborhood that was raided a couple weeks ago and people uh, were beat up. They got their house torn apart by the IDF. And people in Tel Aviv, thousands of people in Tel Aviv have been protesting against Netanyahu. And within the last couple of years, people have not been happy with Netanyahu. I want to go back to Hamas because that is a very touchy subject that people, especially the media, they want to keep asking, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas? How many Hamas are being created now? 
because of this genocide? How many children who have seen their parents die, who have seen their siblings die? It's, it's, it's honestly like very upsetting. At the end of the day, we honestly need more conflict resolution as well, because we have seen this again many times where there'll be atrocities and after the fact, countries are kind of just left on their own to figure it out. And what conflict resolution or healing did the Jewish people have after the Holocaust? Not much. I want to uh, take a little uh, side course here, since I have you, Samira, to 2020, um, where when it seemed that the U.S. attention was completely captured by the Black Lives Matter movement, both mm-hmm. for better and for worse. In this moment of great polarization, where we're being overwhelmed with information and our attention is captured by this conflict, what advice would you give to listeners to speak out for that conflict resolution, which you're calling for? I would say uh, pick up some books. There are some great Palestinian books. Um, uh, Noam Chomsky, I love reading Noam Chomsky. Um, he says a lot about Palestinian resistance. Thomas Sankara, um, who was the president of Burkina Faso, he was one of the and he was assassinated, actually. Um, he was one of the main people that also talked about Palestinian resistance. Um, when he spoke and gave his speeches, his three main points talked about Burkina Faso, Namibia, the genocide in Namibia, and or apartheid in South Africa, of course, and, Palest- and Palestinians. Uh, Nelson Mandela also talked about Palestinians. The BLM movement, and the fight for liberation of Black lives in the U.S. and globally has always been intertwined with Palestinian resistance and always been uh, intertwined with Palestinians being able to occupy their own land. I'm proud to say that I've met a lot of students who have done their first protests. Um, I felt like, you know, as like a little flashback to 2020 for me, um, because, you know, you share something when you see an injustice, you stand the f- up and you do what you got to do and you make sure your voice is heard. And that's all it is to know that your voice is, is powerful. And, you know, especially in Saratoga, we now have a new public safety commissioner who is an ex FBI fed and actually set up a sting operation after 9-11 on Muslim mosque leaders in Albany. We need people to show up for that too, you know, and let them know that we don't stand for Islamophobia. Absolutely not. There's power in numbers. I've seen, I mean, we've seen millions of people around the world uh, protest against this. That part gives me hope that you know, people are actually realizing, you know, we talk about the BLM movement in the U.S., but put it on a more broader and global uh, stage. And now people are having like the revelations that I was having in school and how like the U.S. is dirty. The event is on Friday, December 8th, 5 p.m. at Congress Park. 
spirit of life statue in Saratoga. It says to bring an offering for the altar. Do you want to say what that is? We welcome people to bring flowers, teddy bears, signs, uh, pictures of uh, people who have lost their lives in Palestine, baby clothes, baby shoes. So please, if anyone wants to bring any of those things, uh, we'd be grateful. It's going to be a very powerful visual for everyone and for all of Saratoga to see right on Broadway. And is there a link you want to share for people to learn more or find you online? You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Saratoga BLM. We also have a website, saratogablm.org. And also my personal Instagram is samirasangari13. Samira Sangari, co-founder and organizer for Saratoga Black Lives Matter. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, that rally, march, and vigil for Palestine is happening on Friday, December 8th at 5 p.m. at Corliss Park in Saratoga Springs. To find more info on the event, go to www.saratogablm.org. December 10th marks the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The visual will be at the corner of Fuller Road and Western Avenue in front of the Stuyvesant Plaza on Sunday, December 10th from 2 to 3 p.m. Mark Dunley sits down with Richard, with Richard Horan of Border Watch to discuss this and more. We're joined by Richard Horan, who's a member of the Capitol District of Border Watch, and they're holding a vigil on Sunday, December 10th, uh, starting at 2 p.m., uh, to support asylum and make room at the end uh, as part of the Observance International Human Rights Day. It's going to be at the corner of Fuller Road and uh, Western Avenue in front of Stuyvesant Plaza. So, um, Richard, why don't you give us a brief introduction? What is um, you know, Border Watch and, and why this vigil? Well, um, Border Watch is a, a grassroots organization that uh, was formed in 2019 in response to the family separation that was happening at the border. Um, and since then, we've continued to advocate for asylum seekers in uh, a variety of different ways. We have vigils, we have educational events, um, and uh, we do uh, lobbying. Uh, we try to bring our community together uh, and to build awareness um, of what's happening with the asylum seekers and to build support uh, so people will be more welcoming. So de December 10th is the uh, 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, you know, what does that declaration, you know, actually recognize and what is its, uh, you know, sort of legal status? Well, um, actually it was a precursor to the um, Geneva Convention Agreement of 1951, um, which uh, clearly defined who a refugee was and uh, what their rights were. So basically, uh, it was it was that. Um, and uh, let me read you exactly what the definition uh, that they set down is uh, at this convention. They voted that a refugee is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin 
owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, or membership of a particular social or political group. Political group. Um, and uh, that remained uh, that remains the, the definition of a refugee to this day. Um, in 1967, the United States uh, signed uh, the, uh, the protocol agreement. Uh, and in 1980, the, the, the Refugee Act of 1980 was passed and they, they basically retained this definition of refugee uh, in that legislation. So it's, um, so the United States is bound both by international law and uh, our own national law to welcome refugees and asylum seekers. Now, I understand that uh, Capital District Border Watch, you know, formed in 2019, was initially very uh, focused on the separation of families at the, the southwest border. Um, still, apparently, is, is certainly a bit of a problem. But in more recent years, you, you've now been um, focusing on you know, the various asylum seekers that initially were sent from, I guess, Texas, Florida, and elsewhere to, to New York City, and now uh, at least several hundred are here in the, the, the Capital District. You know, w w what are your, you know, sort of existing, um, you know, top priorities in terms of your work? Well, um, it's interesting because um, we had this uh, visit for the first time last year. Uh, and um, last year we were advocating for asylum seekers at the border. This year, however, uh, it's much more immediate because since this past May, a thousand asylum seekers have come to the capital region and uh, are being housed in, in four hotels. And so this year we want to also bring attention or especially bring attention to the asylum seekers that are here right now and uh, need our support and need our help. Now, this may be beyond the scope of uh, Border Watch, um, but um, I, I know I have some you know, friends who are actually involved in providing support services to uh, you know, refugees uh, that have uh, migrated here for, from Afghanistan. And I assume there's sort of a difference between how the United States government deals with refugees coming from Afghanistan as opposed to, you know, the refugees along the uh, the southern border more likely to come in from, you know, various Latin American countries. Um, yes. Um, and I was I was at a, a meeting just this morning where this issue was discussed and the. Um, the Afghans who have uh, arrived recently have been paroled in. That is, they have a legal status um, and uh, they have a path to um, to work authorization and to permanent residence. The asylum seekers, on the other hand, uh, basically have no legal status and uh, they need to apply for asylum here uh, before they are eligible for um with authorization so uh the situation is is quite is quite different because the afghans have a lot more they have more options and more support so, so what are some of the specific things you would like to see i guess the biden administration federally or even maybe perhaps what the local governments are doing with respect to the support for asylum seekers uh well, all of the above uh, we are very grateful that um, 
Mayor Sheehan and the city of Albany has been very supportive of, um, of the asylum seekers coming to this area. There's not true uh, everyone in the capital region. We, uh, so we're looking for local support uh, and we also are working on state legislation. One area that I was working, I've been working on for the past couple of years is the New York for All Act, which is a uh, which is state is a, a state bill, uh, which would prevent the collaboration of local uh, governments and local law enforcement with ICE. But everyone recognizes that um, these are only partial fixes that it, the the um, the reform has to come. From the from the federal government, and uh, it it hasn't come so far. There, I think there is a, a lot of support for immigration reform, but there is a small minority who continue to block it. So we have to work uh, at all levels, <clears throat> but but the federal uh, level, I think, is the key. <clears throat> now, I I remember couple weeks or months ago, you know, there was a big push uh, by the New York state government um, to try to expedite the provision of, you know, work authorization for asylum seekers to be able to, to legally work. I had heard that uh, apparently because, you know, Biden administration doesn't like Venezuela, you know, that uh, was extended to Venezuelans, but, um, you know, do, are we seeing many Venezuelan among the asylum seekers here in the capital district? And how are others doing in terms of being able to, to legally find work? Um, well, yes, the, the Venezuelans are probably the largest group uh, that uh, that we've seen uh, arrive here. And um, we did uh, a series of, uh, and, and there being uh, Venezuelans who arrived in the country before July 31st, are being offered the option of applying for temporary protective status. And uh, if they are granted that, then they will receive work authorization um, and you know, a path forward. So we did a series of TPS clinics um, about a month ago, and uh, we made a big push to uh, get as many Venezuelans to apply as possible, and the the figure that I heard is that we managed to uh, do uh, two hundred applications. So, but for other groups, um, we haven't been able to do that. So they're they're kind of just existing the best they can. I mean, they are receiving basic support, but they haven't received work authorization. So we've been talking with Richard Aran uh, with Capital District Border Watch, every whole individual to support asylum and make room at the end, International Human Rights Day, Sunday, December 10, 2 p.m. at the corner of Fuller Road and Western Avenue. Uh, Richard, do you have a website if people want more information, Facebook page? But we do have a Facebook page, so look us, look us up at uh, Capital District Border Watch. Thank you very much, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
once more the vigil to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights will be at the corner of Fuller Road and Western Avenue in front of Stuyvesant Plaza on Sunday, December 10th from 2 to 3 p.m. It's time for this week's episode of Rhythm Rebellion. On this episode, Taina Asili speaks with Ethio-American vocalist, songwriter, and composer, McClee. In this interview, McClee talks about how how her cultural upbringing has impacted her music, also the work she's doing outside of music, as well as giving advice to other artists how, on how they can use their creativity to impact the world. Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Sili, and today we have the immense privilege of engaging with a true musical luminary. McLee is an Ethio-American vocalist, songwriter, and composer known for her electric stage presence and her ability to craft deeply personal Ethio-jazz songs that resonate with audiences across the globe. McLeet's music is a journey that has taken her from the heart of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to stages in San Francisco, New York City, Nairobi, Cairo, Montreal, London, Rome, and many more. Her latest album, When the People Move, The Music Moves Too, has not only been named among the best records of the year by Bandcamp and the Sunday Times UK, but has also ascended to the top of iTunes, NACC, and European world charts. Hi, McLee. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me. I am good. I am grounded and I am happy to be here with you. Mm. You know, your music is often described as Ethio jazz and deeply personal storytelling. I was wondering if you could share how your cultural and musical roots and your personal experiences have influenced your unique style and the social impact you aim to achieve through your work. For me, you know, I always wanted to be a musician. I just didn't know how when I was growing up, you know. Then when I moved to San Francisco and like got immersed in this world of arts and culture of people who were thinking about the ways that their music could resonate with the communities around them, could be relevant to the world, could engage in like deep social issues. I was like, that's how I can do it. I get it. And then from that point, every step that I took towards music, music would take 10 steps towards me. And like a real moment of evolution was in um, 2011. I took my band to Ethiopia for the first time. And we performed our very first show there. And sitting in the front row in this like three-piece suit was Mulatu Astatke, the godfather of Ethiopian jazz. And I was mm. like, what's he doing here? What's he doing here? What's he doing here? How'd he get here? How'd he get here? How'd he get here? What he's, what's he doing here? Why is, uh, uh, you know, I was just like, I was so nervous. Mm. And... Before that, I had learned that whether it's the godfather of Ethiopian jazz or it's like only the people in the room who organize the show or it's a packed house, like everybody gets the same show. They get a show that's like, you know, you expressing your spirit. So anyway, after the show, he took me aside, Mulatu Astatke, the godfather of Ethiopian jazz. He took me aside and he said, you know, Ethiopian jazz, we have a long way to go. Basically, he was telling me, like, culture is not stuck in amber. He said, what's your contribution to Ethio Jazz? Why you find that contribution and keep innovating. Don't be afraid to keep innovating. What's your mark on it? He said, for me, I took the pentatonic scales and I merged them with the diatonic scales. And he was like, that was what I did. What are you going to do? And I was like, <laughs> well, um, and then I thought about that conversation for three years. 
and and I thought okay and then it took um being on tour with the Nile Project being on tour with like this group of incredible traditional musicians traditional Ethiopian musicians and I saw that okay what I'm really drawn to is rhythmic and I was like I'm gonna bring Ethiopian rhythms into Ethio jazz and I'm gonna just start there and then I wrote the album when the people move the music moves too and so I like to think of myself as like rooted in tradition and innovation so that's kind of my musical path and then creatively just in terms of the kind of projects and initiatives that I work with it's just understanding that music is a place both to like you know be in it for the long haul because our hearts need nourishment along the struggle for justice and peace that is ongoing and also that we can tell bigger stories together than we can on our own and so I like to bring artists together to tell the biggest stories we can collectively. Mm. I wanted to see if we could talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing outside of music. Yes, of course. We know you are a National Geographic Explorer, TED Senior Fellow, co-founder of the Nile Project, an advocate for social change through the arts. And today you also have this podcast, this live show movement, which delves into global migration through music. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more about your work outside of music. Yes. What inspires it? Yeah. Well, you know, I've always been an organizer. Like when I was a kid, it would come out in these ways that were more informal. Like my friends would call me and be over the summers and be like, in high school and be like, okay, what are we doing today? And I would like make (laughs) plan. I'll be like, okay, we're doing this today. We're doing that. I just like to organize. I like bringing people together. And creatively, it has been a a real strength for me because like the power of bringing people together is exponential, especially for a common purpose. When I started writing songs, it was the exact same time that I became the co-director of the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco's Mission District. And we were like doing family art for children in the neighborhood. We were collaboratively working with other artists to do installations against gentrification and against police violence in the neighborhood. And that was at the very same time that I was writing songs. And through all this, I met so many musicians. And then I was like, well, I just started writing songs. Do you maybe want to be in my band with me? Like, could we maybe do a song? Could we maybe do like a couple songs together? <laughs> the next? And they were like, yeah, sure. Let's like, we were doing all this stuff mm. together. And so organizing was about community building and immediately started supporting my songwriting too. But for me, like telling bigger stories than we can tell alone is incredibly, incredibly important. And that's why I co-founded the Nile Project, which brought together musicians from the 11 countries of the Nile Basin to learn from each other, to co-write songs together, co-arrange, and then really look at and model the kind of cross-cultural communication we wanted to see around the resource sharing in the river basin. And then also putting African people in a leadership position around a specific question, which is like, okay, how well do you know the people who with whom you share an ecology? 
And how does that knowing them or not knowing them impact the way resources are shared in our ecologies, wherever those ecologies are? And we were putting African peoples, African musicians, in particular African women musicians in leadership positions around facilitating and exploring those ecological conversations across North America, across Europe, and across the Nile Basin itself. We really felt arts and culture are essential, not extra. They are essential to not just creating connection to other people, but also where the people who are most impacted by oppressions, by particular social justice issues can be the ones in leadership positions around defining Mm -hmm. the dialogues, the narratives that impact the policy, whether it's around ecology, migration, or, or other aspects. Oh my goodness, what a gift. Megli, your commitment to social impact through the arts is truly inspiring. And I was wondering what advice you would give to other artists who aspire to use their creative talents to make a positive difference in our world. The first thing I would say is like, understand that once you get into social justice and social change, like people want to know, well, what's your impact? <laughs> you know, and this can yes. be very deflating right. and demoralizing. Yep. Because yep. when you're talking about an effect that you have on another people or a group of people, that can be difficult to measure. So what I would say is like, we actually can almost never really truly understand our impact. Mm-hmm. And it's only sometimes that we get windows into it. And what I'm trying to say is like, don't be discouraged by that impact question, like wrestle with it, experiment with it, but also like understand when it comes to affecting someone else's heart, like sometimes we're lucky enough to hear from a person like, hey, your music kept me going in a time when I was facing something very difficult and dark. Like for me, those kinds of impacts are just as important as like the things that we can measure on a graph or a chart. Mm. So just understand that impact is something very wide and broad and we can't ignore it, but we also can't lose sight of the intangibleness of music and the ways that when it comes to the way that our hearts are buoyed and our spirits are buoyed by working with it, that that's just as important. So look out for it, listen for it. Yeah. But just don't get discouraged by those impact conversations. Wow. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. That was Taini Asili speaking with Meckley on this week's episode of Rhythm Rebellion. You can find more episodes of Rhythm Rebellion on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Thanks to Moses Nagel for helping edit this interview. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is (laughs) Kaylin McPherson. (laughs) We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributions to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Alexis Goldsmith, Taina Asili, and Moses Nagel. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. 
If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on our Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. <clears throat> Tune in Wednesday, uh, weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you for listening. Until next time.